The Spokesman Review presents the Northwest Passages Book Club podcast, where we start the conversation with interesting authors, newsmakers, and creative people. This is Christy Burns, and in this episode, I talk to Libby Grant, who writes under the pen name Olivia Hawker, who joins us to talk about her adventures in self-publishing that garnered her a book deal with Lake Union Publishing and her book, One for the Blackbird, One for the Crow. Which one of your pseudonyms? Yeah, let, Am I? Are you talking to Libby or Olivia right now? Libby or Olivia. Well, you know, the thing is, is when you told me that you went by Libby, I was like, okay, great, all in, because my um, grandmother is a Libby. Oh, really? But she was a Libby that was from an Elizabeth. Okay, yeah, most of them are. I am just, my, Libby is my real name, and I'm just Libby, and I was named after my great-grandma, who was also just Libby. So then you go from Libby, well, did you start with that name while you were writing? I did. I started with Libby Hawker, um, and I still write under that pen name from time to time. And uh, as my career progressed, I started working with Lake Union Publishing, which has been great. They published three books under that pen name, um, and then they decided to kind of relaunch me and angle me toward a sort of a different sector of the publishing market to do more um, upmarket and literary fiction, as it's called. And we kind of brainstormed, okay, how can we rebrand for this? And we thought, you know... Libby's kind of a kind of a hick name. <laughs> Doesn't really sound uh, very upmarket. So we we started thinking about what we could what we could name me instead that would still sort of feel like uh, the same author, but give a clear message that it was um, a different tone. Yeah, yes, I mean, you spent a very long time in Egypt. Yes, <laughs> and I'm still in Egypt to some degree. Um, I have a lot of fans who don't want me to quit writing in Egypt, and I love them, so I want to keep giving them those books. Wow. Um, I'm also a little burnt out on Egypt, so <laughs> sometimes it's hard for me to make myself do it, but um, I am working on an Egyptian novel at the moment for them. But um, yeah, there's there's some sexiness in those books, too, because, uh, you know, it sells well. Sex sells, as they say. With the Libby books, and then you say you're writing for that audience, how did you find that audience? Oh, gosh. Um, the audience kind of found me, which mm-hmm. was really lucky. Um, I had been trying to sell my more commercial historical fiction to publishers for a long time. I worked with two different agents, and they were never able to sell any of my books. One of them, honestly, didn't really try very hard, or Mm. at all. (laughs) So I ended up parting ways with both of my agents, and I was looking at my options, and I thought, you know, for at least this one book, um, which was the second bed, the first book, first novel I ever completed, I was like, you know, it's been submitted everywhere. Every publisher has turned it down. I don't really have an option with this book except to self-publish it. Mm-hmm. So I thought, whatever, I'll just throw it out there on Kindle, and if someone wants to read it, great, it's out there. Well, after a couple of months, of after I had initially self-published it, I started getting all these mysterious deposits in my bank account. Mysterious deposits I in know. your bank account? That's what every writer loves. That's like, right. I had actually forgotten that I had self-published that book, so I was like, where is this money Where did it come from? from? This is weird. That's um, great. And then I remembered, oh yeah, I self-published a book. And then I went and looked at the dashboard the Kindle dashboard, and it was actually selling really well. Yeah. And I had just kind of lucked into a sector of the publishing market that was chronically underserved. Um, there's a huge group of readers out there who really want to read ancient historical fiction, especially Egypt. Yeah. But there's not a lot of it being published. Um, publishers, you know, they have much higher... Uh, they have m- much higher overheads. Their bottom line is a lot different from a self-publishing author. So if books don't sell to a certain threshold, publishers consider it kind of not an option for them to pursue that niche of an audience. Mm-hmm. But the audience is still there. Yeah. And for somebody who can publish it themselves and who has you know a lot fewer people to pay, it's just me and mm-hmm. you know maybe whoever I hire to do my editing, 
and my cover design, um, I don't have as many bills. I don't have to, I don't have to, <laughs> it's not as demanding to stay in the black with a self-published book. So I was able to take all these ancient historical fiction stories I'd written to this very hungry audience that was really eager for them, and I stood out right away because of that. It was just purely a luck thing. Um, so that was kind of cool. Your research uh, into it uh, had to, has to be spot on because people are going to know what period you're in or not, or how do you with stuff with oh that pharaoh wasn't around, oh, yeah. or what's a, a you know you introduced me to a couple new names, Hatiria, <laughs> Hatira, Hatira. <laughs> see there you go. That's all right. I know. Still, it is, but there must have been other names and things that you discover and have to put in the right place. Um, I'm going to get really nerdy on you for a minute here. (laughs) I said nerdy with an N. I pulled, so I didn't say dirty. Yeah. (laughs) I'm getting dirty. Sorry to disappoint. Um, but I, I, you have to be extremely on point with your research when you write historical fiction because historical fiction fans are like really into it. Mm -hmm. And if you mess up the history, they will let you know mm-hmm. for years afterwards, <laughs> very vocally. Yeah. So yeah, I, I do kind of pride myself on being very historically accurate with my commercial historical fiction. It's kind of my thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm very proud of the fact that I took the most recent theories um, in Egyptology on the Amarna period of Egypt, which is a very popular period. You're so nerdy right now. I'm so nerdy. <laughs> and, I, and I constructed a really tight, awesome, like, thriller plot line in, th- in a three-book series, which is The Book of Coming Forth by Day. I love that series because it, like, brought all the most recent Egyptology into it, and I made this really fun story based on current ideas about Egyptology instead of wow. much older ideas that you find more often in Egyptian historical fiction. So sure. It's like, here it is, guys. It's and the current <laughs> theories you've all been waiting for in fiction form. And the <laughs> audience loved it. So, <laughs> yay, I did it. <laughs> How do you then turn the corner and then write from your own family stories and have the same kind of thing? I'm just talking particularly about Blackbird. One for the Blackbird, one for the Crow. How you, you know, traced your genealogy, but then it was Cora's... Cora was the daughter of Sam Grant, Ulysses Grant's yes, brother. brother. Okay, yeah. and then so you're messing around a little bit there, which I, the illegitimate daughter then yes. gets some China. I, you know, plot points that I might be giving away from the book. The oh, book no, is fantastic. Okay. Oh, thank it you. It is a lovely read. And when you get into you start reading it, it you can't put it down. And the prairie, the, the weather becomes a character. What's happening, and I'm thinking, oh my God, were there all these horrible, crazy floods at that point <laughs> in the 1870s? I'm worried. Yeah, how do you source that information with... Um, well, um, a lot of what's in that book, uh, except for the stuff about Cora's relationship to Ulysses S. Grant and his family and the China, mm-hmm. that is all real. Um, a lot of the rest of it is just made up, though. So there is a flood in the book, spoiler alert. It's just an ordinary flash flood. It's terrifying for the people who are caught up in it, but yeah. it's not like this was a flood that made you know the, the historical records all the time during those seasons. Um, so it's just a regular old flash flood. Um, but there's... It, the nice thing about a book like Blackbird is that I can be so much looser with it. I don't have to nail all the historical accuracy, accuracy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, no one's going to be fact-checking a book that's just about a couple of families on the frontier in 1876. No one, you know, there's nothing to check. <laughs> Still, it's fascinating. I like the way that Weather, I, I thought that Weather moved in with uh, Nettie May, the character Nettie May in particular, and how then she eventually, these tumultuous children, um, wore her down, um, <laughs> but that she eventually cared about them 
Um, and she was like dead set against it, dead set against like any liking any of the kids or being yeah. part of any of that. Yeah. She, Clyde was her only son. Yeah, no, I'm not going to give away the, the stuff That's okay. about Clyde. Spoilers. Yeah, no, <laughs> but no, I, the way that you revealed things about her was also great. The loss of her earlier child, child yeah. in a flood, um, and then the miscarriages that she had had, yeah. things like that. And I, uh, we got actually an email from somebody, or it was on Facebook, that they're listening to this book oh, with yes. their family, yes. and it's bringing up all kinds of things for their their kids to talk about. Yeah. Like, people don't talk about miscarriages, people don't talk about losing um, children or, uh, you know, death, people don't talk about death at all, which was one of the reasons you wanted to write this book. Yeah, I really wanted to write this book because... Um, you know, the book is about, it's based loosely on my family members, of course, but really I wanted to write about death because people don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. And that fascinates me and concerns me in many ways because it's something that we're all going to do someday. <laughs> you know? It's true. We and everyone and everything we love will die someday. And that's something that in the sort of dominant culture that we all live in, we shy away from and deny. And I don't think that's healthy. No. I don't think it's right or normal um, or, you know, psychologically healthy to deny that this thing will happen to us and everyone we love. And I, I wanted to present um, a more well-rounded and a more peaceful and accepting way of looking at death and, and of seeing it as uh, a universal experience that everyone and everything goes through. Um, and I just happened to find the right vehicle to explore that theme in this story about my family, from my family's history. So I was fortunate in that way. But yeah, the book is much more about the fact of death and death's place in the cycle of life than it is purely about my family. So, yeah. Uh, no, th yes, that that is very true. I am fascinated by how you delve into your family to get these smaller stories that tell a bigger picture yeah. and that are able to expand in another way. Ragged Edge of Night, you yeah. culled from your husband's uh, side of the family at that point. Yeah, so my 2018 novel, The Ragged Edge of Night, um, which was a Washington Post bestseller. Woohoo! <laughs> and his option for film, I don't know if it'll get made into The options, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, fingers crossed, everyone. So that one is about my husband's grandfather, who was um, a music teacher in a really tiny village in Germany during World War II, and he got involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler, as you do. <laughs> well, all the good people do. Right. You know, there you go. <laughs> So that was that was a nice opportunity to, you know, in the United States, since we were one of the major deciding factors in, in winning World War II, we sort of wrote the history, as they say, you know, the, the victors write the history. Mm -hmm. And we just kind of made everyone in the West, including, unfortunately, a lot of Germans, believe that everybody in Germany was evil and was totally on board with this Nazi thing. And that was not the case no. at all. Yeah. Um, when you actually start reading about the real history of it and, and where people fell on the spectrum... Um, it's shocking how few Germans were actually in support of the Nazi party, but um, so many bad political things happened that they became powerless very rapidly. So I wanted to tell that story, you know, from from my family's perspective as well, uh, about how they felt trapped in this system and how they found ways to fight back against it however they could. So that's what, that's what The Ragged Edge of Night is about. Yeah. How much time do you spend researching and putting things together? And I guess this leads to, you know, your pantsiness, uh, <laughs> the uh, the ebook that you wrote, take off your pants and get writing. <laughs> take off your <laughs> pants, outline your books, and outline your books. There, there you go. <laughs> That's the title. That is the title. Books. It, it really depends on the book. Um, and how much accurate history I need to have in mm -hmm. it. So if it's something that's like my fiction about Egyptian royal families where I know someone's going to be like on Wikipedia checking every single thing I say, um, I spend a lot more time researching it and constructing a really intricate plot to make sure it fits together and works with the known history. If it's something like Blackbird, 
that's more of a personal story and is not as big um, on the historical scale. Uh, I don't spend as much time working out dramatic, specific details of what's going to happen and when. I get a little bit more freeform, and I'm I'm directed in those situations more by um, kind of the emotional story that's being told. Okay, if that makes sense. So um, I'm a little bit freer to to kind of write what I feel instead of writing what needs to be there in service to the history. <laughs> I hope that makes sense. Sure, it absolutely does. So it varies does. a lot from book to book. You make your own schedule. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, I still wake up at 5.30 in the morning, unfortunately. That's just ingrained into me now. I am out of bed at 5.30 every morning. And what, where did that come from? I don't know. It's just the way I am, I guess. Oh, gosh. It's awful. <laughs> well, that's why you get stuff done. Yeah, I suppose so. That probably is. I'm usually done with my writing by about noon, so... I get to go out and do whatever I want for the rest of the day, which is not. You get stuff from that. You had mentioned a um, your permaculture. Yes, uh, we have a, an intricate garden. It's farming. <laughs> always, always in progress. We're always adding more to it and reworking and fiddling with it, and um, it's fun. I love gardening. It's just it's wonderful. And I got my mom into it too. She has her own little garden now too, and she just raves about it all the time and how much she loves it. So it is gardening is wonderful. It just connects you to the earth so much and all the cycles of life and death, which. Apropos, that's a lot of what's in Blackbird. There's that. Well, absolutely, please read the book. uh, And it is the subject tonight of Northwest Passages Book Club. If y'all are listening to this because you missed it, I'm sorry. And uh, but if you're listening to this to remember all the cool things from the evening, that's great too. But Olivia slash Libby (laughs) Hawker, thank you so much for coming to Northwest Passages. And really, really, I so look forward to reading the next one. Oh, thank you so much. It's really great to be here. Like what you hear. We'd love for you to experience Northwest Passages in person. Check out our website for our event schedule and more. www.spokesman.com forward slash Northwest Passages. Or be the first to know what's happening and subscribe to the Spokesman Review. Spokesman Review.